welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Amoria Bond. In each episode, Amoria Bond will interview a prominent leader from across their specialist STEM sectors to discuss their personal experiences of progression and share invaluable insights and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere. Hello, I'm Natasha Crump, advisor to the Amoria Bond Board on Strategic Programmes, Global Diversity and Inclusion Lead, and co-founder of the company's internal ASEM programme, dedicated to accelerating true gender balance both internally and across our specialist STEM sectors. It's my pleasure to welcome Rhonda D'Ambrosio as my guest today on the Amoria Bond Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast. Rhonda is an FIRP accredited recruitment professional and qualified performance coach who started her own career in the recruitment industry back in 1997. After working for a number of high profile staffing businesses, Rhonda co-founded MIDA Technologies in 2007. After losing her mum to motor neuron disease in 2013, Rhonda was inspired to understand more about resilience, quality of thinking, and how our mental health impacts everything we do whether at work or play, when combined with our inner values and beliefs. Now Transformation Director of Mindset and Mental Health at Ebenable, Rhonda works with business leaders and organisations to provide easily accessible employee solutions for better mental health and wellbeing, alongside professional development, strategy and leadership coaching. And in 2020, Rhonda founded Mental Health and Recruitment. Thanks so much for joining us on Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast today, Rhonda. Thanks, Natasha. I'm really pleased to be here. So, Rhonda, I first got to know you earlier this year, not long after you launched Mental Health and Recruitment, and we bonded over our mutual love of dogs and in particular German shepherds. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. What's been really clear and evident to me from that very first phone call on Zoom, actually, in the summer is just how genuinely passionate you are about taking away the stigma of mental health and about the role businesses have in supporting and promoting the mental health and well-being of employees. At the risk of stating the obvious and putting aside legal responsibilities, I'd like to start today by asking you why organisations should care about employee mental health and well-being and why is it so essential in the context of progressing lives? You know, it is a brilliant question and, and actually one that I don't think is obvious, Natasha, because there is still such a stigma around the term mental health, right? And in previous decades, what we found is that emotions and things like that should be very much left at the door. Whereas now what we're seeing is this understanding that, well, we all have mental health. Um, We all have mental health in exactly the same way that we have physical health. And for me, that's the basis of kind of why employers should care about it because you know we're human beings and we're people and you know just like employers would care about the physical health of people that work for them and we have by law the health and safety executive telling us that we need to consider certain elements we have risk assessments and so on that need to be in play it shouldn't be different for mental health completely agree and I think as well if you think about kind of getting the best out of your people Mental fitness, which I know is something that you talk about in some of your the sessions that you provide, but that mental fitness is just as important as physical fitness. 
absolutely. I think what we found historically is that going to the gym and improving our physical health has always been applauded and it's always been seen as a way to keep ourselves physically fitter and healthier. But we know there's a direct correlation between our mental health and physical fitness, but we never really give thought to the fact that how many employers encourage their people to do mental workouts, right? And I read a really good, I think it was a post yesterday on Instagram where, you know, somebody said that the brain is a part of the body, right? It's an organ in the body. And if your brain is is sick, if your brain isn't working, you know, properly, then, you know, you'd look to strengthen it. You'd look to, I guess, medicate or whatever you do. You'd, you'd try and look after it. You'd try and fix the problem, right? But it's almost never seen that way. Never seen that way. It's in your head. That's what people will often, um, you hear that language all the time, right? You hear the terms, we're all guilty of it. It's been embedded in us, I think, from a, a cultural perspective. You know, that person's mental, they're not right in the head. And it's so it's so disparaging and it's seen as, um, you know, a, a really, really negative thing. And I had a conversation with, I was doing a, a live actually with an organisation um, a few months ago. And, you know, they almost didn't want me to talk about or, or use the term mental health and for me that sort of was everything that was the problem with your or the reason that I launched mental health and recruitment because there's this lack of understanding as to what mental health means and it isn't somebody an individual with a mental health issue or disorder that's that shouldn't be the only time we're talking about our mental health or our mental wellness you know because we all have it that's that's the point I often try to make you know this should be an easily termed phrase that we can we can just talk about without there being that oh that person that that person's got an issue or oh we're only referring to people with the diagnosed condition that kind of thing yeah that's interesting isn't it and I think that that speaks to a different kind of perspective of mental health that actually by investing in mental health and employee well-being employees can really help promote that good mental health and sustained good mental health for their employees yeah, because, you know, if you're not doing that, then what you're kind of saying is that, oh, you know, that's that, that doesn't matter. It's behind closed doors. Oh, no, we're not going to look at that. And you're immediately disabling your workforce immediately, because even when you talk about the stats that, you know, came out in the Thriving at Work report and we were told that, you know, one in four of us will suffer with a common mental health disorder at any given time. And, you know, I think the latest stats in the workplace are one one in six point eight. I, I always find, find it funny given that stat, but one in six of us will have an issue due to work, you know, the workplace. You know, I think there was a lot of misunderstanding about what those stats meant. And I remember talking about it and people saying to me, oh, so what you're saying is, you know, it's one, two, three, that person there's going to have a problem. One, two, three, that person there's going to have a problem. And I would often say, well, no, because it's changeable. Based on what we deal with in our lives, based on the external pressures that we have and the stress vulnerability that each of us work to, you know, this week, it could be me that's for whatever reason um, struggling, that has the challenges, that is feeling a level of uncertainty or anxiety. And next week or the week after, it could be you because your personal circumstances may change. And I think it's really remiss of employers not to factor that in when they're looking at, you know, their culture and what they want from their people, because the people are the core of any organisation. They're the ones that they are the workforce. They're the ones that are going to make you money. So, you know, if we flip this and we talked about our employees or our workforce being a mechanical function, something in a factory, you would want your machinery operating as effectively as possible. And it's no different. Ideally, you want your people operating as effectively as possible, because then they are going to do the better job for you. 
I often say this, if you have happy people, then you have a happier workforce. And not only are they going to give you maybe an extra whatever percentage, but it's just going to take the business forward in a really positive way. You know, happy people work harder. I think the comparison there with the uh, machinery operating effectively will really resonate with some of our STEM clients. Um, Rhonda, it's a really helpful way, analogy to use. The energy and dedication you put into your work, your passion is so evident. I'm really interested to know who has inspired you in particular, since you shifted gears and moved yourself into the field of mindset and mental health? Wow, I guess it's a, a, a big question because, you know, my career for 23 years, uh, you know, for most of that has been very much embedded in the operational side of recruitment, being on the job. And none of us seem to have wanted to, nobody, I've never met anybody, Natasha, that went out and actively sought to, to join the industry. I'm sure there are people out there, but I've never met one yet in 23 years. And like most people, I fell into recruitment and sort of ended up finding my way. And if I think back to the early stage of my career, one of the people that really had a profound impact on me was somebody that I used to work with who then worked for me, who went on to become you know, my business partner of my recruitment company. And that was Deborah, Deborah Howes. And I just remember, I didn't know this, this girl very well. And she, it was her, she had this amazing ethic. She was just relentless in what it meant to service and provide good service to clients and candidates. And she could almost just block out the noise around her to get stuff done. So I think that definitely impacted me because, you know, we went on to be very, very good friends, like sisters, set up a, a successful business together. And, and that, I guess, bringing how each of us work together and the admiration that I had for the way in which, you know, she did things and how hard she worked for people, especially candidates in the recruitment industry, was a big piece in probably what what enabled me to be a mum, you know, have my girls, because my girls were very young when I launched the business. I think my eldest was about three or maybe two, nearly three, and my youngest was about 18 months. Oh, and gosh. yeah, so wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back in 2007, a year before another major recession. But I guess seeing that and having that faith and that that trust in somebody that, you know, yeah, that changed my life working with Deborah, actually. And it almost... I guess to answer your question in another way, I guess with what I'm doing now, you're aware of um, the situation with my mum. So, you know, my mum for a year um, wasn't very well. She was under the doctor. They were doing numerous tests to work out why she couldn't really talk properly. And after a year, you know, as her voice had started to fail more and her ability to move and, and walk started to fail. And then finally, her respiratory system, we got this diagnosis of motor neurons disease. And, you know, it is a terminal illness. It, you know, it's, there is no coming back from it. There is no cure. And um, that was a remarkably difficult period in time. But I will often say that looking at the way in which my mum managed and coped and committed herself to the very little life that she had left was the single biggest inspirational point in my life and especially in my career, because, you know, my mum got diagnosed in the March, April. She was terminal by the June and we lost her in the August. And in that time, she 
chose to be present. She chose to enjoy every moment that she had left, even though the disease had robbed her of her ability to communicate effectively with us, to move, to, you know, she was trapped in her own mind. Yet when I look back, and this has become the framework of what I do around quality of thinking and, and coaching people for almost that proactive approach to mental health. For me, it was my mum's choice in how she outwardly responded. So regardless of what was going on, regardless of knowing that she was dying and um, her body was failing her and knowing that she was leaving us all, she still chose to be present. Her behaviour, her outward response was one of defiance and that, you know, she she wasn't going to let it rob her, rob her of everything. And, and And I just think that for me, when I consider all of the things that we all have to deal with in life, when you leverage that type of perspective, it really, really helps. And so, yeah, I, 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 is saying my mum cliche who inspired me? That's the truth. That's the truth. And and the reason why I do what I do now and why I care about helping people improve their quality of thinking. There's loads of stats out there and evidence that as a human race, we are about the most unhappy we've been for decades. So I'm just wondering, are you seeing a change now in attitudes from from the corporate world or do you still think we're lagging far behind yes i think that you know if you were to look back over the last 9 months i've seen an avalanche in terms of shift with regard to businesses understanding that it's a problem and i think that stems i would say that stems from the fact that when we went into the first lockdown individuals and leaders and business owners that probably felt that they were robust in ordinary times that they got this that they now nah, mental health no we're fine you know harden up toughen up man up all those phrases that we hate to hear i think those individuals when they were in lockdown at home with their kids couldn't go out got a taste of what it is that other people maybe have been dealing with and continue to deal with for whatever reason. So it has become, I think, more acceptable to talk about it. The press, as you say, and the media are talking much more about the the mental health pandemic and the impact on all of us that the COVID situation has caused. And I guess the concern for me is that it's not short term. And this is why when we launched Mental Health and Recruitment, I talked about the forthcoming Awareness to Action Pledge, because if I go back a year or two years and look at when people would typically get me into their business, they would bring me in around the, the mental health awareness days. The UK one, the standard one, the global one. Yes, Rhonda, can you come in? Can you give a talk? Can you do a workshop? I would then pitch, do you need ongoing support? What can I help you with? No, 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 we're good, we're good. We're looking at it, we're looking at it. You know, always manana, manana until the next year. Oh, Rhonda, can you come back in again? And, you know, the idea behind the pledge was actually to take organisations from awareness to tangible action, to making changes within their business to support the mental health and well-being of their employees on an ongoing basis you know, not just at those type different times of year. And even with mental health and recruitment, it launched in July, but it's been a kind of a culmination of the work that I've been doing in the last seven years. And I think the first post I put on Instagram was a, you know, look, mental health is for life, not just coronavirus. So I guess that summarises probably what you're asking. Yes, I'm seeing a huge shift and a huge uptake. And are we reacting to the fact that we're all in this, this storm at the moment? Absolutely. Do I hope that it continues to be a priority? as we move into easier climbs, of course I do. And I think maybe more people will be aware of it. But the polar opposite to what you're talking about is the amount of organisations that are pivoting and popping up and springboarding into action to provide mental health support services. And I think that's where, you know, I, I think there's some due diligence required on companies to look at the intent of these sorts of organisations, because it's if it's there and it helps, it's great. 
but that's and I guess that's a personal opinion of mine Natasha coming back to how I feel about it so it's not for everybody but you know I just don't don't like the idea of making a quick buck off of people's misery you know I invest in it for the right reasons and do it for the right reasons. I think that's a really critical point there Rhonda and I'm just kind of thinking for companies and organisations who really want to start better supporting their employees but don't really know where to start or how to go about it that kind of due diligence that you mentioned and the approach that they should take, where should they start? What's your recommendations for companies that really want to kind of genuinely really want to start making a difference? The first place I would always recommend is that they start by understanding the people that are in the business and the workforce. Because as an example, if you decide that you want to do a better thing, if you decide that actually we should be doing this and we should be doing more, and this is what we should be doing based on what we hear and what we see, there's two pieces to that in the sense of, you're, going to, you're, you're basically looking to change the culture of your organisation. And what we know is that change and uncertainty causes anxiety. So you really do need to do the consultation piece and understand how fit for purpose you currently are and how much work needs to happen. And no organisation is going to get their employees to openly talk about their mental health and their struggles and to bear their soul if they don't feel there's a layer of psychological safety because it's just so against how we feel, right? It's if, if our business that's maybe never talked about it before suddenly says, right, everybody, we want to do more for mental health. We're all going to, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get Rhonda in, or we're going to get that person in, and we're going to have a session, and we're going to talk about it more, and, you know, come and tell us your problems. You know, people aren't going to do that. It's such a personal and such a private thing. So you've really got to understand your audience and you've got to understand, again, your intention. What are your reasons for doing it? Are you doing it to tick a box or do you want to see a big shift in what you're doing and how you support your people? I could name off, you know, five or six tips for you that these are things that organisations should be doing in the workplace. But if they don't start with that consultation, then the adoption is going to be a lot harder. That's really helpful, actually. And Rhonda, you mentioned due diligence in terms of the that maybe the people that you bring into your business to help you with mental health and well-being programs what would you suggest that companies look out for don't look for when they're kind of in that due diligence process because I think that's a really good point that you you, you mentioned before well, I guess it's like all things, Natasha, right, even down to the recruitment relationships that we have. We typically do well and we thrive working with people that have the same values as us that are doing it for the right reasons. There are so many solutions out there. There are so many people that are offering different support services and different things that can benefit people. You know, and I'm not saying that, you know, organisations should be going out and should be interviewing every person and just checking whether or not, they, you know, are, are they ethical? Are they doing it for the right reasons? If you want a service and you find a product that enables you to get what it is you're looking for then by all means do it but when it comes to I think mental health partners and you know if you're bringing in support to the organization you kind of again you need to maybe make sure that that's aligned with what you want as a business and and your kind of culture and the things that are important to you if you're doing it as a tick box exercise then you can select a tick box partner I guess but it's funny, I don't really have that many people say to me, oh, why do you do what you do? You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Why do you do what you do? If I'm talking to them about different services. And so I guess it's the fine line. It's a fine line between the values and just just like we would in any organisation when we're selecting partners. Why do we want to work with certain people? What is it we expect from those partners? Is it just a transactional relationship? And if it is, that's fine. All parties know it. But if you're putting people in the hands of a third party, then, you know, maybe just think about it in a bit more detail. And, and, and I think the reason I say that is because 
so many organisations that I talk to say, oh, we do, we're okay, we don't need any um, support. We, we've got an EAP, we've got an employee assistance programme. Our guys have got access to a counsellor. So they absolutely just absolve themselves of any responsibility of, you know, what's going on in the business, whether or not their business causes stress. Um, many organisations aren't aware that whilst there is no legal requirement for them to, you know, provide mental health first aiders, um, as there is with physical first aiders, they do have an obligation when it comes to the stress, managing the stress of their employees. And the suggestion from um, the HSE is that you are doing stress risk assessments. How many companies do you know that do that? Really, very good point. What help is there or tools and resources that you might recommend for businesses who want to be doing more for their employees? I think there are tools out there that are reactive tools. So, you know, if an organisation feels that there's a problem, there are tools out there that can, you know, offer some practical, a few of them CBT-based support offerings. Um, And then there are tools out there that are preventative that are aimed at improving people's, I guess, resilience in order to be able to, to cope better. And um, there's a few different ones out there. You've got Paul McGregor's Every Mind at Work. That's a piece of software that I think goes into organisations and gives, I think, leaders some insight as well into how people are feeling and gives individuals some resources. You've got the great work that the team at um, Thrive do and their app is again it's I think there's many different elements to it whereby you can have access to a psychologist for a certain level as well and or you can just use some of their basic questionnaires and some of the exercises that they give you you know that we've got Kite we're working with New Zealand organization the Kite program which is it's an app which a really lovely story actually Hannah the founder she had a first child and she got a totally out the blue diagnosis of bipolar and absolutely rocked her world because you know not only was she trying to sort of cope with being a new parent a new mum she then had this question around her identity because all of a sudden she had acute bipolar and she found that there were limited resources out there that could help her. It was just a case of get medicated, get medicated. So she created this um, wellbeing program, which is based on taking these small bite-sized chunks, this micro learning approach whereby you can have access to you know daily pieces of information that will stop you feeling as overwhelmed, that will give you coping strategies and that, that will be easily achieved even if you've got a really, really busy schedule. We teamed up with Kite and we've created like a bit of a combo of well-being and L&D, but also uh, the Kite the Kite for Business program, which is like a well-being solution, which enables organisations to put their own well-being resources that they already have, some of their company pieces in there and make it bite-sized, affordable and easy to digest. Because, again, we know that this stuff is very, very personal. And the reason I love Kite so much is because it's in people's pockets. So you can choose what it is you want to work on. It's down to you and you can do it at your own speed. So again, that's 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 very preventative. But there's a, there's so many different ones out there. I think you have to look at what is it that you want for your organisation? Do you think that there's a problem? Because hopefully you would have done the consultation. And what is it that you want to address, right? What outcome are you looking for? And what is going to best support what you're trying to achieve? And yeah, I don't, I I don't want to go in and do a whole sales pitch. (laughs) Why organisations should look at Kite, but I love it in terms of that preventative piece. And I was very proud, actually, to, I was asked to contribute at the beginning of lockdown to a a very, very affordable tool called Kite Support, which we tried to get out for as small amount as, as money as possible. It was like the price of a cup of coffee for your employees, whereby they could work through over 40 weeks of content around like personal well-being, social well-being, remote working and remote leadership and stuff like that 
Hannah Hardy-Jones at the Kite Programme, I find very inspirational. In, in, in answer to your earlier question, she was in the mix of it. You know, she was feeling it. She told me she was on the bathroom floor, you know, hysterically crying, saying, give me something to do. And people just, they just wanted to medicate her. And it, amongst all of that, being a new mum, she then took her HR and psychology background and created a solution. And I find that, I find the work she does and, yeah, really inspirational. And that's what I then mean about choosing, surrounding yourself with the right people. I love what she's doing. Yes, we all want to maybe go out and create our own app, but I think, wow, this is somebody I'm really proud to partner with. We've talked a lot, haven't we, about the importance of opening up conversations in the workplace around mental health. The reality is that many of us will worry about saying the wrong thing or be fearful of overstepping this personal professional boundary. And that definitely puts people off from attempting to have conversations in work or conversations with colleagues regarding mental health, regarding how they are. What advice or tips can you give to people who are listening who might be in that situation who might be like oh I know I should be doing this but how do I make sure I'm not getting it wrong how do I make sure I'm not using the wrong words first and foremost just be a human being I talk a lot about compassion I talk a lot about kindness and I've always felt that you can lead people decisively and fairly and be kind you don't have to be a dick about it there are ways in which you can talk to people if you can humanize it and if you cannot overthink it and just ask that individual how they're doing or how they're really doing then don't hold back you know if you think something's wrong if somebody doesn't see themselves then you know ask them but don't just take that first answer we we few of us in mental health and recruitment we always talk about the value of asking twice are you okay no are you really okay because people we're almost why do we do it you know hi natasha how are you yeah yeah i'm fine <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How do we, yeah, it was a really good week. Really? You know, well, actually, um, I understand the nervousness of doing it, but that's why there is, again, I think work to be done between bridging the gap between policy and people and making it clear to our employees that there are processes and there is policy in place with regards to things like performance. You know, however, you know, welfare conversations are something different. And you're never going to get, as I said earlier on, people just talking to you if that's not what you've done. If you're an organisation that hasn't encouraged those conversations, you have to understand people may not feel comfortable talking to you. But, you know, as a human being, as an individual, so instead of being, you know, Joe Bloggs, the manager, if you are just Joe talking to Steve don't know where I'm getting the names from today, but, you know, but, but actually just humanising it and having a conversation and, and then having the integrity not to use that against the individual if they're not performing, but understanding, right, you know, talking to them, how are you doing? Is this an issue? And, and we, we, this is a, such a vast topic. It's, it's hard for us to cover in, you know, a five minute conversation in terms of, of a tip because there's bigger pieces at play when you run a business. And, you, and I think if you understand and have a framework that you can work to and you can have those conversations and just think about signposting your people in the right direction that that in itself just chatting to them can make a huge difference wonder i'm just conscious of time i knew that i could could, this one could go for a long time (laughs) you and i could talk for hours but i think before we kind of draw to a close i think it'd be remiss not to ask that anyone who's listening to the podcast is feeling that they're struggling with their own mental health what would you recommend that they do you know what first of all just don't beat yourself up don't think there's something wrong with you okay because what we know is so many people feel the same way 
when you go back to some so some of the guests that I've had on my podcast and you've talked about some of their big light bulb moments, in particular men's mental health, there's always been a bit of a revelation if somebody's kind of talked to one of their mates and said they're struggling that more often than not that person will go, yeah, actually I went through a similar thing. So first of all, don't beat yourself up and don't think that you're alone or it's just you and understand that it's not a weakness. If you went outside and got run over by a bus and had a broken leg, you wouldn't think you were weak. You probably think you might be stupid for walking into a bus or unlucky, but you know, you wouldn't label yourself in that way. So be kind. And I think the second thing is, is reach out and look at understand who your support system is so we have people in our lives that are typically very good for us for different things we have people that make us laugh we'll have people that are great confidence people that give us high energy and almost get in your mind and label who the people are in your lives that bring you different things and then you kind of know who you need to maybe reach out to when you're feeling a certain way and talk to them about it talk to them about this and 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 just really try and surround yourself by people that are good for you as opposed to people that aren't good for you great advice thanks Rhonda it's genuinely as always been wonderful to talk to you today before we close one more question if I may what is the most significant piece of advice you would give to somebody listening that might help them progress an area of their life Joe, I'm going to tie it back to something I said earlier about my mum but also the work of Carol Dweck, who's done a huge uh, amount on growth mindset. And do you know what? Choose your response. In anything that you're doing with regard to how anything makes you feel, you can either react or you can respond. If you respond, then that is a choice you are making. And that means that you're in control of moving forwards and that you are choosing to progress in a particular direction. So If you react, then I don't think you necessarily are progressing. I think you're just in limbo. I think you're keeping yourself in a situation. And you can apply this to everything, not just mental health, your career, whatever it is. You know, when you react, you're kind of just, you're not, you're stagnating. You're potentially not moving forward. When you respond, that is the choice that you've made in order to move forward. And that's when progression happens, whether it's yourself, your personal development, uh, your career, your business, you know, yeah, respond, don't react. That is a brilliant way to finish the conversation. Rhonda, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. It's been really great talking to you, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere. Brought to you by Moria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.